On this edition of Geopolitics and Empire, we interview University of Northern Colorado Professor of History, Dr. Steven Siegel, to discuss his new book, Map Men, Transnational Lives and Deaths of Geographers in the Making of East Central Europe. We'll look at the lives of these map makers, what influenced them, and how they influenced geopolitics with their creations. Thanks for coming on to the podcast, Dr. Siegel. Thanks very much for the invitation. So we're taking a slight detour from some of our usual topics uh, on the Geopolitics and Empire podcast to expand a bit, to look at history and the lives of some important geographers, because these are all things that at the end of the day influence uh, and do have geopolitical ramifications on our lives, because these maps uh, influence the way policymakers uh, view the world, perhaps, and base some of their decisions on. And in the background of the lives of these geographers is the rise and fall of empires. And so to start, could you just briefly give us uh, your th thoughts, whatever comes to mind, uh, your views on, in general, geopolitics, empire, and perhaps the, their intersection with uh, geography? I think it's really important from the beginning to understand the range of scholarship on empire and especially in the larger Russian, East European, and Eurasian field, two of my big sources of inspiration have been the journals Kritika and Abenturio. Um, both of these uh, journal initiatives for academics and for experts came out of the fall of the Soviet Union, and I think came out of the understanding, which was a very big turn in the mid to late 1990s and early 2000s under the Bush years, that the United States was also an empire and that the United States should be included in the larger comparative transnational study of empires. So um, some of the inspirations for me were these two journals. I remember when I was a graduate student reading Dominic Levin, for example, or the work of Ron Suni um, in the Soviet field. And I kept thinking that there had to be a way through maps to understand geopolitics, not just in the classical way as geopolitics emerged um, from Rudolf Schelein and Halford Kinder uh, or Friedrich Ratzel and some of the classic theorists, but getting deeper into the world of map production, not just mental maps, but actual maps. Um, so I, I saw, I think, um, in my previous books, Ukraine Under Western Eyes, which I published with Harvard University Press uh, in 2013, um, and in Mapping Europe's Borderlands, Russian Cartography in the Age of Empire, which was published by the University of Chicago in 2012. Uh, to locate maps as artifacts, as texts, as objects for exchange, and ultimately not just as tools, but as evidence of um, their creators' more subjective and emotional lives. So, uh, in a sense, Map Men as a book project, um, when I started it in you know, 2010, um, came out of this world of imperiology or this study of empires in, in a 
encourages uh, in transnational kind of way. So uh, for Mapman, then I took five characters uh, who are my five protagonists, part of the quintet in the book. Each of these characters represent an empire. Some of them are large, like, um, for example, Isaiah Bowman, who is presiding over the American empire as a geographer who is working in service to Woodrow Wilson, to later to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And some of the empires are small. Uh, for example, um, my other character, one of them is Count Paul Teleki in Hungary, uh, whose country after World War One, with the Treaty of Trianon, um, has um, shrunk from 20 million to uh, about 9 million, eight and a half million people. And I think um, because this podcast is, is so concentrated on geopolitics and empire, my first point would be that these geographers are, are not just geopoliticians. They're, they're not just uh, theorists like Halford McKinder was a theorist, but they were very deeply very deeply in the 19th century, um, engaged in the earth in the earth sciences and Erdkunde. Uh, so um, this approach that I have in Mapman, I would say, is is more transnational than comparative. Uh, it, it's not just taking a typology or a range of countries and predicting their uh, rise and fall, or, or studying their structural reasons for rise and fall but taking actual characters and actual map makers from within the empires. And you describe in your book how some maps can be uh, deceiving. And if you could just talk a little bit about this, because often I think most people, when they look at maps, they just view them as neutral and uh, objective. I think that's the impression most people get when that's definitely not uh, the case. Uh, and as well as you mentioned, the five different uh, geographers and the map men and, and the different areas of the world they come from, they had their own biases. Some of them perhaps were uh, racist, they're different ideologies. Um, so could you talk about how maps can be deceiving? Sure. And you already, I think, gave the answer in part. Race is one of the specter something maps in the 20th century. It might um, even be the biggest specter uh, because the ways of understanding conflict and division and line drawing for each of my five geographers, um, Albrecht Hank of Germany, Eugenius Romer of Poland, who sent his geographical atlas very famously to the US and France and the UK for the independence of Poland after World War I, um, Stepan Rudnitsky, the geographer from Ukraine who was killed during the purges in 1937. Uh, Isaiah Bowman, um, who served two presidents, and Count Paul Teleki of Hungary, who committed suicide in Budapest in 1941. I think all of, of these geographers um, were very subjective, and in the sense that the scholarship that, that came out of the 90s, um, Benedict Anderson Census Map Museum from Imagine Communities, Mark Monmonier's How to Lie with Maps, which is still very much a classic, also published by the University of Chicago Press in 1991, 1992. 
these books represented a turn toward critical geography and critical cartography studies. Um, this is an emergent discipline. And I, I think um, once the internet started in 94, 95, and GIS took off and the geospatial industry took off, it, it became something of a cliche that um, maps were not just subjective, but also simulative in, in the sense of, of Baudrillard. So uh, what I do is um, less theory in MapMen um, than empirical study of the traces, the worlds, the letters, lives, families that uh, these men left behind. I, I try to put into context their larger lives and deaths and the trajectories of their lives and deaths from the 1870s into the 1940s and 1950s. Um, beyond just the maps that they produced. I, I can give one example and, and then we can move forward. One of the most famous maps that came out of the years after World War I was the so-called Carte Rouge or Red Map, uh, which was produced in Hungary as a showpiece uh, for the territorial integrity of Hungary. The map was made in Budapest by um, Count Paul Teleki, who became twice the prime minister of Hungary. He was a geographer by training. Um, he was very interested in um, Africa. He traveled to the Sudan. Uh, he had produced in Budapest um, during an age of Japanophilia when people were reading George, George Bernard Shaw and the French were obsessed with Japanese art. He produced an atlas on Europe's early modern cartography of Japan. Anyway, it was he, Teleki, who um, devised this crimson paprika-style carte rouge, red map. Uh, and the red map, which was drawn um, in Hungary uh, and became uh, very influential for revisionist cartography uh, in the interwar Hungarian state, had all sorts of very interesting intellectual precedents and geopolitical precedents. It used population density as a unit of measurement. Um, it was an argument against um, the French, who, um, backed by the geographer Emmanuel de Marton, who was at the Paris Peace Conference, supported the Little Entente and supported the aims of Czechoslovakia and Romania and Yugoslavia uh, against Hungary and, and Hungarians. So um, there was this flurry of maps that I describe in the book and especially in 1918 and 1919, um, based on nationalities, based on population statistics and censuses. Um, and those particular maps obviously were, were very distorted and very subjective, using units of measurement, using language as a reductive category of analysis to argue not just for independence, but also for a greater Hungary or a greater Poland or a greater um, Ukraine, or the resuscitation of, of German colonialism as, as became common um, in the Weimar period and later during the Nazi era. Um, so there are many other examples of, of maps that I, I, can, um, I can focus in on, but the carte rouge or red map uh, in the Hungarian case is a, is a great thing to study. It, it appeared in multiple languages, in fact, it was advertised in five different languages, 
was sent to the United States at that moment when the Hungarian delegation um, was locked out of the Paris, of the Paris negotiation. Um, so uh, those are some of the um, some of the maps. Um, if you'd like bourgeois national maps, that I'm discussing mm -hmm. in the book. And uh, just briefly, you mentioned Teleki and the Japanese map, and in your book, in some instances, and and in this instance, you uh, mentioned how he. Uh, hadn't i guess been to japan and didn't know the language and some of the geographers in, in some of their publications were criticized um and in some of their publications were they perhaps slightly incompetent uh, or, or or how much did it affect uh, the fact that he hadn't been uh, to japan that's a great question um i'll i can try to answer that one from the Hungarian angle and then from the American angle and um, talk a little bit about the illiberalism of each of these men. So um, Teleki was very much a colonial geographer. Uh, his family in Transylvania went uh, all the way back probably 15, 16, 17 generations. Um, his great-great-great-great-grandfather, uh, Mihai Teleki, um, back in the age of negotiation between Transylvania and the Ottoman Empire and the borderlands um, had been extremely influential in Hungarian politics. But Teleki, like the other geographers, came to geography very late in the 1890s and early 1900s. Geography had already been established earlier uh, in the century in Europe, for example, the founding of um, geographical societies in 1821 in Paris, in 1828 uh, in um, Berlin, in 1830 with the Royal Geographical Society, and for that matter, in the Russian Empire with the Imperial Russian Geographical Society in 1845. So um, Teleki, together with a lot of the other geographers, really didn't quite know how to make geography into a profession. What they did and how they were rewarded um, was to hitch geography to colonial projects, not just geopolitical projects, but colonial projects. Um, Alec, I don't think, was very good at drawing maps at all, but um, I think he understood the information and especially the statistical information drawn from censuses it needed to appear in maps to make maps into more authoritative looking artifacts. Another really good example of this, and this is my path to the United States, um, would be the geographer from Poland, Eugeniusz Romer, who is a really big focus of my book. He, like Teleki, was an aristocrat in a very old aristocratic family dating back to the 15th century. Um, it was he, Romer, who from Habsburg, Galicia in Austria-Hungary produced probably the most influential atlas of the 20th century and certainly the most influential atlas of Poland in Poland's history. Um, he created it in the early years of the war while he was in Vienna. It became the Geo Geographical Statistical Atlas of Poland, a model for many future 20th century national atlases um, elsewhere in Eastern Europe. He sent it to the United States through his friend Isaiah Bowman, and it um, 
made its way into the hands of Woodrow Wilson himself. So if we're talking about geopolitics, when Wilson creates or um, has the idea for his 14 points um, as an address to Congress involving the United States in Central and Eastern Europe and the world after empires, he draws directly from um, Eugenia Schromer's atlas. The last example of this would be Isaiah Bowman himself, and, and I'd love to talk about him some more, but I'll just give a, a couple of um, basic points about him and his own incompetence. Um, Bowman himself became the director of the American Geographical Society in 1915, and Woodrow Wilson appointed Bowman who had absolutely no knowledge of East European languages. He, he knew German, um, a little bit of French, and some Spanish, but no Slavic languages, no knowledge of Russian, uh, was um, very much an anti-communist. He was appointed by Wilson as the chief territorial specialist to prepare um, the U.S. Commission of Experts called the Inquiry and later the, the Committee to Negotiate Peace for the Paris Peace Talks at the beginning of 1919. Um, Bowman um, was a little bit better than Teleki uh, at drawing maps. He certainly wasn't as good at, at, at doing it as Romer, who had his own cartographic firm in Poland. Um, but Bowman, without really any knowledge of um, Czech, or Romanian, or Hungarian, or Croatian, or Serbian, Ukrainian, or even Russian, uh, was responsible as the territorial specialist for mapping out half of the European continent. Um, and he, uh, with his friendship together with um, Romer, was a fierce advocate for the independence of Poland. Um, Bowman, uh, who had studied geography at Harvard and Yale, and had been um, an expert on settlement issues in South America in the 19 aughts, uh, then became um, very, very anti-communist and, and much more conservative, uh, especially in his later years in the 1930s and 1940s. So um, these are some of the people that I discussed. They were the drawers of maps. Um, they certainly um, prioritized particular things. For Bowman, it was population and settlement. Heleki, it was nationalism and population density. And for Romer, his idea, fixed, his fixed idea, fixed, I would say, was the independence of Poland and the expansion of Poland's borders, of greater Poland, um, to include Lwów, um, Lviv, Lemberg, or Vilna, Vilnius, at, at all costs, it, 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 and to make the, the territory as great as possible in 1919 and 1921. Right. And Bowman, uh, for me, is one of the most interesting, and I've, I've read about him before, uh, myself, well, us as Americans, and the interest of this, this podcast, Geopolitics and Empire, um, especially since Bowman had been part of the Council on Foreign Relations War and Peace uh, Studies project during the 40s, which kind of laid the groundwork for America's hegemony uh, after that. Um, and in your book, you describe Bowman's eagerness to serve uh, the U.S. empire. He published his 1915 geography reader on South America, which promoted the expansion of American empire in Latin America, uh, as well as you mentioned in your book, his later publications 
which some of them served as the first American policy texts in the genre of U.S. exceptionalism, where he asserted the U.S. right to extend its hegemonic global interests in the name of liberal uh, democracy uh, in a 1921 publication, which had some mixed reviews. Uh, so could you talk more uh, about Bowman, uh, his views of uh, American exceptionalism, as well as uh, his influence in that regard? Sure. I think, um, first of all, I, I owe a great deal to a book I, I'm sure you're familiar with, and our listeners uh, would very much like to read if they haven't read it already, and that's Neil Smith, or the late Neil Smith, the Scottish geographer, student of David Harvey, his book on American empire, in which he features Bowman and um, Bowman's work, as you've described it, in the Council on Foreign Relations, um, which was started in 1921, uh, in the M Project, which was started in 1938, which was all about the settlement or resettlement of European populations. Um, I, I owe a great deal to um, Neil Smith, um, who is a Marxist geographer, as I mentioned, a student of Harvey. Um, but one, one of my points of departure from um, Smith in the book is to dig very deeply into Bowman's private life, his family, and also his professional network. So I spent a, a lot of time actually uh, working through the American Geographical Society's archives uh, in New York and Milwaukee um, and through the Bowman Papers, which are stored at Johns Hopkins University, uh, together with a lot of very, very interesting um, never-released maps that the in inquiry was using, or in some cases recently declassified maps. Uh, you mentioned Bowman's um, advocacy for American imperial hegemony. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, but I would also say that Bowman was not alone among American geographers in thinking that way. Uh, his inspiration and his mentor um, in the United States was William Morris Davis, um, who together with um, Nathaniel Southgate Shaler at Harvard uh, became two of the founding fathers of the um, Association of American Geographers. Another aspect which I think um, has been very much neglected in Bowman's intellectual world uh, is his contact with German and also with East European or Central and East European geographers. So three of his biggest contacts were with the German geographer Albrecht Penck, uh, who was the professor of geography um, at the University of Berlin starting in 1906. He retired in 1926. He was very much a colonial folkish geographer. Bowman was also very good friends, as I've mentioned, um, with Eugeniusz Romer, the Polish geographer. They had met on this excursion across the West um, as part of the American Geographical Society's expedition in 1912. Uh, and Bowman um, was also a friend of um, Count Teleki, Paul Teleki, and for that matter, Teleki's son, who was a geologist, um, who came to the United States uh, after uh, World War II, at the beginning of the Cold War. Anyway, um, to answer the, the connection about South America, it's very interesting to think about Bowman's mental mapping and then actual mapping as a continuation of his 
understanding of South America. Uh, so, for instance, in this network, um, one of the books that Bowman reviewed in the year after the Council of Foreign Relations was formed um, was a book by Albert Pank's son, um, whose name was Walter Pank. Uh, he wrote a book called The Puna of Atacama, uh, which is a, a brilliant book about the Andes Mountains and landforms and border disputes between um, Chile and, and Bolivia in the War of the Pacific. Um, Walter Bowman was uh, the son of Albrecht, and um, Bowman had, together with Davis, a major falling out with the German geographers in the 1920s. Um, in fact, um, Bowman was trying very, very hard um, to resuscitate the 19th century kind of scientific community of, of geographers. Uh, and diplomatically to reassemble the relationships between the American geographers and German geographers. One thing that he that he did, um, Bowman, was to uh, keep contact because he spoke German, because he wrote in English, uh, and because he was very involved with Yale's um, Department of, in, of Geology and, and Geography, with this international network of, of European um, scholars, European geographers. Um, so while Davis uh, had a very, um, very, very, uh, I would say, acrimonious falling out with Pank, these were two of the great geomorphologists of, of, of the world, Bowman tried in the 1920s and 1930s a bad time for, for <laughs> trying to put together a peaceful network of geographers to bring back the international community. Um, so in one and the same time, you have a colonial geographer who is incompetent in mapping out Central and Eastern Europe without very much knowledge of history or of the languages spoken by the people in the region. And at the same time, someone who is a fierce advocate for peace and cooperation and conflict resolution and bringing back the world of European geographers, getting them to conference together together. Um, even after the League of Nations has failed. Uh, Bowman then becomes, in, after World War II, uh, one of the advocates for the, the League of Nations as well. So uh, this story is, is kind of missing from Smith, um, who's um, focused much more on, on geopolitics and, and conflict in American hegemony. I wanted to recover that um, particular aspect of these geographers' um, intersections of, of private and, and, um, and public or private and professional lives. So, and also, I guess I'd want to just take a moment and ask, you know, what what other important points uh, in your research? I guess you start. You said you started 2010, so that's about eight years. Uh, what other key points uh, do you feel are, are important uh, in the book? I would say that there there are three big takeaway points. The the first is about maps. The second is about geography, and the third is about communication. On the first point about maps, obviously, when um, geographers study maps, they they have to deal with questions of simplification and distortion. But there are all different kinds of maps in in the sciences, and especially in the earth sciences. So. Um, not just geopolitics, but hydrology, um, topography, 
climatology, um, statistical demography. Um, and in studying maps, I think one has to pay attention to the sheer variety and, and richness of the world of these geographers. So to reduce everything to geopolitics is to fall victim to the one-dimensional world, getting rid of the other senses, smell, taste, reducing everything to sight. And uh, I think that's a very important lesson for uh, the digital universe of, of maps. Not, not everything is, can be reduced to a story of conflict and geopolitics. Um, if, if you're a practicing geographer, historian or historical geographer, um, there are all sorts of different uses of maps. And these geographers I discuss in the book um, were, were much more than, geo, than geopoliticians. Uh, I think uh, on the second point, um, really more about, about geopolitics, um, certainly this is not to deny how absolutely prejudiced and um, racist and, for that matter, sexist these geographers were in their manly worlds. Um, my book is also a gender history of science, and it's a history of how um, these men managed to exclude women from the profession or minorities from the profession. Um, practicing Hungarian geographers in the 1920s were certainly uh, almost all men. Um, there were some women who were involved Romer's cartographic institutes, um, but there weren't very many. Uh, this is something um, as part of an old world of Ostmitteleuropa science that, that really changes or begins to change in the 1960s um, with the rise of Marxist geography, with people like David Harvey, uh, with the establishment later on in the, the 80s and 90s of critical geography and eventually critical cartography studies and critical GIS studies. So uh, as an academic, I think to study the discipline means not, not just reducing to um, the world of, of geopoliticians. Understanding geography is part of a larger history of science, um, which is a very vexed and very tense, and, and um, I think a history of science that's full of, of prejudice. The third point that I, I would draw um, is really about... I would say geography more generally. So the, the takeaway point is to study how maps are communicated and then how the identity of map, maker, map makers is shaped by that particular form of in, intersubjective tension. So when I study in the book or, or when I research the families, um, the networks of these professional geographers who were part of Central and East European or Ukrainian or Russian technical intelligentsias expand across the borders of the maps that they drew. Um, and that takes us all the way up to the present. So um, issues such as the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, uh, which is often framed as a conflict um, between two nationalities or uh, in which Ukrainians and Russians can be called ethnic and represented only by their languages. One of my uh, attempts in the book through researching uh, the community of these scholars is to show the much larger world of geography and science in, in which they were involved. So um, to talk about maps as, as just distortion, 
um, or just geopolitics, I think is ex extremely reductive. And, and, and that would probably be my biggest takeaway point. Um, from doing research on the, the, the internal worlds, the emotional worlds of politics. And you mentioned Ukraine. And so let's talk about that uh, a bit. I believe you've written a book previously on uh, Ukraine. And uh, you were telling me that you're, uh, you recently, you're kind of new to, to Twitter. And that's how I first came across your work. And actually, I found your Twitter feed very resourceful. You publish a lot of uh, interesting maps and and commentary. Uh, and and then through your Twitter feed, I find you know other uh, other um, academics. Uh, and uh, something interesting with the situation in the sea, uh, the recent situation with the naval ships uh, between Russia and Ukraine. You you published uh, a comment how the news many news outlets were just kind of hyping stuff uh, out of proportion uh, and you were talking about something called viral maps uh, so could you talk a little bit about this yeah i as someone who is an academic and um, a practicing historian who's done research on geography and cartography now for 20 years i joined twitter back in june of 2018 when MapMen was published by uh, by Chicago. But I'm relatively new to it. And um, one of the things that has astonished me uh, following um, viral maps and, and how maps get popularized um, is that sometimes the worst maps are the ones that go viral. Not the most sophisticated maps, not let's say, choropleth maps or maps which extensively use um, census data uh, or maps which are very skeptical toward um, red-blue electoral mapping and, and gerrymandering. Um, but it, it's the one-dimensional maps and the flat maps, or it, it's the maps that color in a particular territory as a kind of land grab. Um, there were many observers who, who um, saw this in the 20th century. The map is not the territory, um, as Alfred um, Karibsky wrote, or um, maps precede territory, as Jean Baudrillard wrote in talking about um, simulacra and media and spectacle. I think the Ukraine case, especially um, in the context of Euromaidan and the Crimea annexation in 2014, was a real turning point. Um, and it was a turning point because um, I have an article, by the way, if you follow me, on, not just on Twitter, but on academia.edu, it's coming out at German publications, German volumes. If you follow how Ukraine was represented during the conflict from November of 2013 up until March of 2014, uh, I would say there were three types of maps that were used to uh, represent Ukraine. Um, one was um, sheer, maybe even brute geopolitics, that is pipeline maps. Uh, those pipeline maps appeared in um, major news outlets. They were in The Guardian. Uh, they were in um, Mother Jones. Um, those particular maps as a way of understanding and explaining the conflict. Um, there were also uh, 
electoral maps, and many of them, instead of appearing in, in red and blue, as is commonplace in the world that CNN and Fox News have created, um, instead of that, they would appear in you know yellow and blue, or they would be available um, at the first click of Wikipedia, and then so therefore, some journalist who was working on a deadline would find electoral data or language data from one of these wiki sites, pass it around, it would get um, hundreds of likes or thousands of retweets, and then it would be used by even major news outlets like the Washington Post as um, an explanation, this is, one, this is the one map you need to understand Ukrainian conflict. And then, of course, the nationalities maps, which is something that I, I tweet about quite a lot. Um, nationalities maps, if you go back to Yugoslavia during the 1990s, at the very least, you know, and, and, to, um, and to Tujman's famous napkin, um, Gerard Toll at Virginia Tech writes a lot about this for Bosnia. You know, it, to study those particular maps in media, which are reducing territories or reducing, I would say, populations to nationalities, and then advocating for a greater Serbia or a greater Croatia. These were commonplace much earlier in the century. If you study um, how Poland was represented, they're common even now in the ongoing conflict over Crimea. So, you know, if you take, for example, the issue of bias or sensitivity um, you'll see maps in um, Kromatske Radio or, or in Radio Free Europe, where Ukraine, now under martial law, is colored in orange to suggest um, the necessity of, the, uh, of referring back to the Orange Revolution. Um, you'll see um, representations of ethnic Russians and then with, percent, with particular percentages uh, in Russian media on, on official state television every now and then. So, you know, then to study how these maps are passed around, um, by whom, often um, with blind clicks or blind retweets, is an extraordinarily um, important part of, of the research that we're doing in Eurasia and CIS and in Eurasia, I would say, for the next decade. Um, one short example of this, one kind of last example I would give is um, that geopolitics is not just a story of conflict. So obviously there is um, a contentiousness between Ukraine and Russia. There is a war that is going on in the Donbass, in Donetsk and Luhansk, in the republics. Um, the seizure of territory, the seizure of the sea in Azov, the Kerch Strait. But, you know, there are also, let's say, media-generated or even um, newspaper in the old-fashioned way generated conflict as a way of selling copies and, and, um, and this, in a sense, promoting war. So uh, for the Ukrainian case, one of the most common maps that I see right now is the conflict with scare quotations um, between Ukraine and Hungary um, in, in Zaporozhia, Zaporizhia, uh, in near the city of Ushkorod or Ushkorod, uh, over the issue of borders or over the issue of Ukrainian minorities or Hungarian minorities. I think um, if you're to do research on the history of photography, it would be great to kind of try to trace who is making these maps, what kind of um, agendas or biases or um, 
say, emotional lives and subjectivities they have, why it's getting passed around, for whom, for what purpose. Is it just alarmist, um, as in, you know, this is another conflict we need to watch out for, or is it a staged and performed conflict that, that it is being advanced through maps for particular reasons? Um, I don't have really good answers to this, but I, I think as one studies um, the history of conflict uh, going forward now after um, the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation in 2013-2014, in we need to pay very close um, attention to these, fu these future Nagorno-Karabakhs, if you will, uh, in, in CIS or maybe even elsewhere in I think this is an important point because you know, I've been f fooled uh, numerous times and especially on social media when I'll find out that something is uh, not right. I will definitely undo the retweet or, or, or delete the, the post. And do you have any final thought or, or comment to, to leave, leave us with? Sure. And, you know, lastly, also uh, one more time, thank you for the interview. Um, in the next books that I'm, I'm writing, I'm, I'm actually working on two right now, uh, I'm studying lines and lines, the drawing of lines, um, not just as a source of conflict, but as a, as a source of distinction, um, differentiation, separation, and violence. Um, I would recommend that people um, who are studying Russia and Eastern Europe and Eurasia expand their worlds much more widely and read um, books, for example, on the history of cartography in Thailand, Siam Maps by Tongchai Winichako is a classic book, uh, or the history of Japan, um, the work of, of Karen Yanomoto and, and um, Karen Vigan, uh, Marsha Yanomoto, I would say, uh, to study the history of Japan and the conflict between Japan and China uh, or Korea. Um, there's a wonderful book. I, I could rattle off a lot of these, but I, I'll, I'll stop um, by Zadie Antrim, um, who has just published with Reaction Books in London, a book called Mapping the Middle East, um, which is covering um, the history of Palestine, um, Egypt, Turkey, um, using Arabic sources focusing on the drawing of um, the blue lines and, and green lines and uh, the conflict between Israel and its neighbors. So um, not just, let's say, to get trapped in um, Ruski Mir or in Ukrainian nationalist politics or the rise of fascism and the rise of liberalism in, in Central and Eastern Europe, but um, to try to understand um, before one just likes or loves or clicks or retweets the longer um, history of, of these maps and, and how, um, how they were produced um, going back sometimes not just decades, but hundreds and, and thousands of years. All right. And you're on Twitter, as you said, since uh, June, uh, academia.edu, and we'll post the links. And is there anywhere else uh, people can follow you and support your work? Sure. So, um, uh, the book is available, Map, uh, Mapman is available through Kindle um, and uh, through all, all sorts of um, other electronic means, but you can get it for as low as 8 to $10. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Academia and ResearchGate. I'm also there. Um, I'm 
I'm very much a proponent of getting beyond the firewalls that are created by institutions. Um, I put all of my journal articles and sometimes even my working papers online. Um, I have a, a new piece, uh, which I've been writing, called Murder of a Transnational Mapman, uh, about a Belarusian geographer and soil scientist whose name is Arkad Smolich. That piece is available um, if you want to read it. Uh, this was a, a person who died, was killed during the purges at the age of 47 in, in Belarus by the NKVD. Um, so I, I'm pursuing uh, more work on um, borders and mapping and the drawing of lines. And uh, I do uh, hope that um, people who are interested in this on social media will, uh, will um, find my work and, and um, write to me or respond to me. I'm always very happy to answer questions uh, on Twitter or, or elsewhere if there is interest. So definitely do check out Dr. Siegel's uh, Twitter. It's very resourceful, very useful. And definitely check out his book. If you do purchase it on Amazon, uh, just a few days ago for Geopolitics and Empire, we created the Amazon Associates referral link. So you can help us out uh, by using our Amazon referral link to purchase uh, the book. And thank you again for, for your time uh, and the interview. My pleasure.